Welcome to Ripstop on the Record, a podcast where fabric enthusiasts and DIY gurus discuss all things make your own gear, with the occasional poor attempt at comedy to keep it interesting. I'm Kyle Baker, the owner and founder of Ripstop by the Roll, and we're excited to have you listening. Hey, John, welcome to Ripstop on the Record. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, hey thank you guys. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I'm going to start out with a, a hard question, maybe an easy question, depending on how introspective you are, but who is John Campbell? Oh, geez. Uh, hmm. I'm not quite sure how to answer that. I, you know, I'm much greater than what I do, you know, in my own mind. I, and I do a lot of things. I mean, I obviously I own Alpine Luddites. Um, it is my, it is my job, my passion kind of doesn't feel like work. Um, but, you know, I, I've been a mountaineer and climber and backpacker my entire life since I was seven years old. Um, and all that stuff just kind of set the tone for how I wanted to live my life and the things I wanted to do. And, you know, here I am today, um, you know, with my own outdoor brand, building custom gear for people. Um, you know, in my travels have taken me all over the world. I've climbed all over the world. I've backpacked all over the world. I've worked all over the world. Um, I've been teaching since my early 20s. Um, I used to be a full-time mountaineering guide at Outward Bound in Sierras in California. I guided ice climbing for years in Montana when I lived in Montana in Bozeman. Um, I, it's a joke that I'm a college professor because I'm a high school dropout. I uh, have a diploma because I was medically excused. They just didn't want me back in school, um, <laughs> which I'm not really bragging about that because I, I had a very hard childhood, but uh, <clears throat> being outside gave me the sanity to get through my childhood, like a lot of people I know in the outdoor industry. Um, and I see it a lot with my students at Strong College. Um, so, you know, I, I, am, I am a misfit that ma made it through. How's that sound? <laughs> no, I think that is a great description. And with all that being said, I mean, it sounds like, you know, you've, you've done a lot of different things over the years. So how mm -hmm. did you fall in to sewing and making gear? Well, I started making my own gear in high school. I started making my own outdoor clothing. Um, you know, I was really into climbing. Um, when I was in high school, I took a Knowles course when I was 16 and did a five-week ski traverse of the Chugash Mountains in Alaska. And that is 1985. That was my first expedition, but I had grown up backpacking, so it wasn't like new to me. Um, but, uh, and since then, I just like been off the rails ever since. Um, you know, I knew exactly what I wanted to do, where I wanted to be, and I made every decision based on getting there somehow. You know, along the way, I've had a couple marriages. I've been I've been married to my wife now for over 20, 22 years. I'm not sure how many years. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I'm a dad. I, I'm father of twins, um, high schoolers. And uh, yeah, I've pretty much kind of done whatever I wanted. I haven't had a real job. Every real job I've had, except for one I've been fired from when I had to work for somebody else. Um, well, you can't fire yourself now that... You were no, yourself, I can't. So. I can't. Um, <laughs> um, you know, and, and I say that half jokingly, but really it's just because I have so many ideas and there's so much I want to do. You know, mediocrity doesn't really interest me. You know, um, it kind of goes in with how I build gear for other people. 
you know, if it takes me 30 hours to build a pack till I'm happy with it, I spend 30 hours on it. Even if I lose, even if I only budgeted 10 or 12 hours to build it, you know, I just, I just, it's just how I am. Um, you kind of alluded to this um, earlier, but obviously making your own gear isn't your only job. Uh, what else do you do besides running Alpine Ludites? Luddites. Luddites. Yeah, Luddites. Um, so I am an adjunct professor at Sterling College in Crestbury, Vermont, and I work with the outdoor education program and I teach outdoor gear design and manufacturing. Um, I also have a permaculture inspired farm in Peachum, Vermont um, that I've been developing. We bought the land just over a year ago. Um, it's how I ended up back in Vermont from the Rockies is I really wanted to farm um, and take care of my family. And I just, you know, Colorado was just too expensive. It was too explosive with fires. Um, and I wanted, to, I wanted to be back in Vermont since I left in 2006. So um, that's how I got back here. But those are the three main things I do is I teach, I run Alpine Luddites, and I, and I farm. So you just mentioned it, John, you're a Vermonter. And for anyone that isn't familiar with Vermont, there's a really unique culture. And if I dare use the, the popular word vibe there, <laughs> can oh, you yeah. explain what Ver, or how Vermont has influenced your trajectory, the company, your gear making even, <clears throat> and explain to people what it is about Vermont that's so unique? Oh, boy. Um, well, I, I guess the first thing I have to say, Vermont is... Uh, where I started my outdoor, my outdoor experience. I grew up backpacking on the long trail as a seven-year-old, you know, so in Southern Vermont, and I, I live in Northern Vermont, I'm 15 miles from the Canadian border. And most days I can see in the Quebec from a shop. Um, like Jay Peak is right over there. And I live a mo two miles from Lake Willoughby, which is arguably the best ice climbing in all of New England. Um, so that's four, the ice climbing area is like five miles from my shop. Um, and we backcountry ski every day here. Um, we get a ton of snow. So me and then my dogs, we ski pretty much 60 to 70 days a year, if I'm not climbing. Um, for our dog walk, we go ski for hours on the, on the logging roads. Um, so Vermont is really civil. It's how I describe it to people. Um, you know, in today's world, I mean, there's certainly a lot of division among people, and it's exacerbated by social media and ineffectual politicians on both sides. Um, and, you know, here we're really accepting of things. And we still, like Vermont still has like town meeting day, one day a year where everything shuts down and everybody goes to their town hall or local school and they actually talk about everything going on in the town and they have to work together. You know, there's still that sense of thrift in Vermont and making do. I mean, people, a lot of people here work really hard. You know, in rural Vermont, it's still a very Argarian society or it's logging based. You know, and a lot of people work for themselves. My neighbor, Jake in Peachum, he's 84. He grew up farming the land I bought with horses. Um, you know, all draft animals. And his father was born there too in 1878. And his grandfather fought for the Union in the Civil War. You know, and so these are the people I kind of know when I was a child living here in Northern Vermont, when I lived in Cabot, um, I had neighbors that didn't have running water in their houses. They've never had running water in their houses. Um, some of them didn't even have electricity. 
you know, Vermont was like the last place in the US to get electricity into the early 60s. Um, but even then, like I know my neighbors, like, why do we need it? <laughs> I think my <clears throat> one of my favorite Vermont stories is uh one of my one of my really good buddies lives fairly close to you um up in northern Vermont. And we were we were driving there from Boston. So we took, you know, went up through the whites and came up came up from the east side of the state and then cut cut over. And uh we were driving through a little town. I don't remember which one. <clears throat> um and on one of the the signs there in the in the town center, it just said uh, taxes due my office. <laughs> it just said that, you know, and we were joking. We we're like, does, does everyone know who that guy is? And sure enough, we're asking my buddy. He's like, of course, everyone knows who, who the taxes go to. You're like, that's your neighbor. It's the same guy you see at the grocery store, the same guy you see down the road. Like everyone knows it's who that court. guy is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Town court can peach him as my neighbor. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> it's, it's so quaint, but so, so lovely. It's an incredible place. But, um, well, yeah. Vermont also has a huge influx of people from New York City. You know, there's two things that have really shaped Vermont. Um, one is the influx of New York City, which has had a huge influence for decades, um, probably over 100 years. You know, Vermont has been like the vacation spot. Um, and the other thing that in the 60s and 70s, during the Back to the Land movement, 30% of Vermont's population was from out of state and they all lived in communes. We have two active communes three miles from my shop that date back from those times. Wow. You know, so it really influenced the politics and the vibe of the state um, by the back to the land movement of the 60s and 70s. Um, yeah, that's that's fascinating. It's um it's a unique place and I, I recommend everyone go check it out. But I think uh, I think there's very in following you for a while now, there's a very clear um, it's, it's fascinating to see how Vermont has influenced what you make and, and uh, your, even your social media dynamic, um, which I think is really fascinating. But I want to ask you about or turn the table kind of to your, to your making style. Um, sure. Your design style is, is unique for gear made in 2022. You know, uh, we see a lot of ultralight packs. We see fabrics getting lighter and lighter, you know, stuff made with 143 Dyneema and 292 and, and phenomenal fabrics in their own right. But your gear is pretty steadfast in a commitment to durability uh, and a very timeless aesthetic. I mean, I don't want to steal your thunder, but you've been making packs kind of with an ode to the old uh, Chouinard style packs. What would sure. you call your design style? Uh, I wouldn't call it anything. I don't really think about it in those terms. You know, um, I've been influenced a lot by a lot of the old gear, A, because I, you know, I knew it as a child um, and I climbed with a lot of older people when I was a teenager and in my twenties, we were using it all the time. They're packed for 20 years old. I was like, wow, that's really cool. And a lot of the old gear has an aesthetic that's really clean. You know, most modern gear, you know, I look at the construction quality. I'm like, wow, this is really poorly sewn. But this is obviously sewn to a price point, which I know it is. Um, Cause I've worked in the outdoor industry for a couple of decades before I started Alpine Luddites. And I used to go to factories in China and I used to sit through the meetings. Well, we need to have packs, we need to have gear, but mainly it was clothing at that time, but we need to have different price points. And this is, you know, to reach those price points, this is what all we can do for a certain product. Um, or the brand story about those brands is totally different than how they actually build their gear and how they think about it on the inside of the company. Um, yeah. I was like, well, this is kind of stupid. Um, this is really disingenuous. Um, and I mean, everyone knows everyone needs to make a living. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that, um, but trying to be everything to every customer, I think is a really bad way to go. Um, 
So my gear is really influenced by earlier designs. Um, I just really like the clean aesthetics. And, you know, durability is, is my main focus. I don't want gear that wears out in six months. I'm sorry. You know, people ask me to build ultralight gear, and I will to a point. But saving weight isn't the only metric to justify building gear. You know, that's not a metric that really interests me. My, my main metrics are fit, because every pack is custom fitted. Every hip belt, not every hip belt, but most hip belts are custom sewn, especially on my big packs. They're all made to measure between your waist and your hip sizes. Back lengths are all made to measure. Shoulder strap spacing can be made to measure. I have three different widths of shoulder straps. I have three or four different styles of hip belts um, that I have templates for that we fine tune to fit every customer. Um, and all the frame stays are cut. Um, and I've bought three or four different um, dimensions of 7075 T6 aluminum frame stays in stock. Wow. I stock, God, I have no idea how many different fabrics. <laughs> um, you know, I've worked with Challenge to get some of the laminated uh, ultra fabrics made for myself. Um, the guys at uh, X-Pack are fantastic. You know, both, both, the, both companies are are great to work with for getting fabrics and talk about doing some custom stuff. Um, you know, I really try to match the fabrics for each project to the end use, which suits the customer. You know, so I don't, I'm not set or dogmatic about that, but I won't build a climbing pack out of five ounce Dyneema because it just doesn't last. I, I see the yeah. repair, get them from other brands. I've seen skis destroy brand new Dyneema packs in days with a burr on the edge. It just cuts right through it. And so I, I, I just ignore what people see from major brands when they ask me about their gear. I you know, I make that pretty clear. It kind of seems like, you know, you, you are very much creating your own path and making your own mark um, on the NYOG industry, but also with your own company. So you kind of alluded to this a little bit, but changing the lens from designing the packs to the fabrics, which is something that you seem really passionate about. What are some fabrics that you're really excited about right now? Well, um, I really like the new ultra fabrics from Challenge. I think they're fantastic. They made me a custom run of the eight ounce ultra, the 800, with, the, uh, with their polyester wow. grid and the 70D nylon bonded on it. It's stiff, it's heavy. It's fucking bomb proof, you know, and there are people that need packs like that. You know, I build packs for individual special forces guys and they need fabrics like that. I'm building packs for an expedition to the Northridge of K2 where there are no porters mm. and animals carrying loads, even to base camp, you know, and they have to hold up for a trip like that. Um, you know, that fabric's pretty amazing. I have a the 200 version. 200 ultra 200 version of that fabric they made for me and i think they're selling it now uh, maybe i'm wrong about that but you know a lot of packs a lot of fabrics wear out from the inside out it's really not from the outside it's people just getting grit and stuff on the inside and it's just constantly grinding it in there every time they set the pack down every time they pack their pack mm -hmm. um and a lot of the protecting those coatings um by having laminates on the inside really makes your pack last a lot longer at any fabric weight um, you know, a lot of like woven nylons that are just coated with polyurethane, um, 
they lose a lot of their structure and strength when all those coatings get worn off because they actually hold the fibers in place. Um, does that make sense? That makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And I think for me, it's really hitting a note because um, going back to ultralight packs and saying that, you know, skis can tear through a Dyneema pack uh, just like that. And one thing I've read a lot on Reddit is, you know, these lighter weight packs using lighter weight fabric are great if you have, you know, you're doing a long backpacking trip, you're trying to save some weight. But also one thing that comes up is a issue of sustainability, right? Like you're using this fabric and it's just tearing through or it might not hold up for three seasons. It might hold up for one backpacking season or one through hike, but it's not going to last, you know, uh, it's not going to be one of these packs hanging on a gear shop wall of like, this is a 20 pack. year old pack. <laughs> yeah. Not an, well, that's a great way to put it. Not an heirloom pack. And I think that's something I'm really hearing from you explaining your background in the farm and living in Vermont and um, just more of a sustainability background in the way that you live your life has also trickled over to the longer durable fabrics, how you build your packs, why you're building them. And I think to me, that's really inspiring to hear because I am very much aware and passionate about ultralight is cool, but it's just, it's not always sustainable. Your pack isn't going to last. Yeah. (laughs) It's also not sustainable for your body. I mean, it might be fine to carry a a 12 ounce pack when you're 22, but you know, I'm 54. Um, and, you know, a lot of my customer, my customer ages are anything like from 19 to 80. You know, I have a really broad range of customers. Um, but, you know, the, the story I always tell people, you know, and, and this is really clear. I, I have this distinct memory and this has happened. I've been, I've done a lot of trips. I used to spend 150 days a year in the field, backpacking and guiding. Wow. You know, I'm outward bound instructor. I'd be in the field for three weeks at a time. I'd be out for four days. I'd be back in the field for three weeks. And I haven't really done any super long through hikes, but I have thousands and thousands of field days. Um, And I still go. I mean, I'm still planning an expedition to the Karakoram next year on the north side, going through Tibet and China. Um, You know, I still do that. I still ice climb all every week um, in the winter. I backcountry ski almost every day. You know, I, I haven't really changed how I do things. Um, but the thing that makes a big point to me is like, if I'm carrying a pack that weighs my, my big expedition packs are about five pounds, which are still a lot lighter than most packs. Cause they're simpler. Um, but a, a pack that weighs five pound carrying, you know, 15 pounds of gear is a lot more comfortable than a pack that weighs one pound carrying 15 pounds of gear, you know, and the wear and tear is just like, you don't even feel the weight. Never mind that. Oh, I saved three pounds in my pack, but you know, I can still feel it. Um, and I, that, when I was when I was really young, like the first time I threw hiked the long trail in Vermont, it was like no, early November. I was coming out of off of Jay Peak and hitchhiking to North Troy to catch the bus home to Connecticut. I, back when Greyhound was still a thing, and uh, I was like, "Wow, my pack feels empty," but it still weighed like 15 pounds. I had like my down sleeping bag in there. I had the stove, the pots. I had no food. Um, I had a water bottle. I, I closed for three season backpacking. It was like a 15 to 20 pound base load. I'm like, I don't feel a thing walking with it because the, fr- the way the, it just carries better. It seems like there's a really fine line that you manage between 
really specific building, right? Creating a, a pack or a, a piece for a very specific purpose and, and person with fit and customizations and, and how they want to use that. But also there's kind of what I feel like what we're getting to is that ultralight packs are really only perfect when you pack them a specific way with the exact gear that you have with, with the right pieces. And there's not really a whole lot of flexibility within that. So although your pieces are custom built and really purpose built, they are more functional because it's not stripped down to the most bare minimum. Is that, is that kind of right? That's kind of right. But I, you know, if someone needs a climbing pack that's stripped down to the bare minimum, I'll build it, Mm -hmm. you know, um, I draw the line at fabric weights. I mean, I think two pounds is plenty light enough. Um, I, you know, I have no interest in, well, what I tell people is I don't weigh my packs and I actually don't. I only know what they weigh from shipping the boxes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if someone really wants to know, I'll weigh it for them, but it, it, it's irrelevant to me. Um, I just say that's a backwards way of looking at how to carry a load. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So we've talked a lot about your packs. What other custom pieces does Alpine Luddites make? Well, I do make bikepacking bags. Um, and that's because I've raced the Tour Divide a couple times now. The, ra- the mountain bike race from Banff, Alberta to the U.S.-Mexico border along the Continental Divide. It's a self-supported 2,700-mile uh, mountain bike race. Um, so that, that's important to me. I still like to ride a lot. Um, I still, before COVID hit, I was planning on racing the Silk Road race, which runs through Kyrgyzstan through the Tinshan Mountains. It's 1,100 miles. Um, And so I try to do one big race every few years. That's the only way I can carve out enough time to train for it. I couldn't do it every year. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I love that despite being an adjunct professor, running a company, and now starting a farm and being a partner and a parent. Uh, you still prioritize adventures. I think it's something that we see a decent amount of in the outdoor community, but in the world as a whole, you don't see you don't see people, adults making time for things like that. How important is that to you to continue doing those things? Well, it's just who I am. I can't imagine not doing them. I, I don't separate anything out. You know, I, I just I just live my life, and that's a big part of my life. And I, I think it's really important to spend time outside. I mean, I don't think people spend enough time outside. I mean, people are, it's, it's great to plan for big trips, but just everyday trips can mean a lot to people. You know, growing up, I've always wanted to walk everywhere. So I hate drive. I don't really like to drive, you know. And my wife is a huge cyclist. She works in bicycle infrastructure. She is a bike advocate. She works with, um, so, you know, cycling is a big part of our family. Um, and I raced road bikes when I was younger. Um, so I, I, in cycle cross, so I've done a lot of time on the saddle, but you know, if it's like two miles or three miles, I'd much rather walk than ride. And I just like being outside, being able to think and having time with my thoughts, you know, it's where I do my best thinking is when I'm walking. And I think short trips are fine. I hike with my dogs every day just to be outside, get out of the shop. Yeah. I think it's all really important when people spend time outside. So talking about, uh, walking and thinking, I was curious to know if that's 
was your inception moment for offering DIY classes? Were you on a walk thinking about making gear and wanting to spread the love of NYOG and had this amazing idea? Uh, <laughs> and just well, curious, we wanted to know more about that, walking through what the classes look like and just the really sure. the nitty gritty of what you're offering to the community. Well, so the classes came about before I moved back to Vermont. I was living down by Telluride in Colorado. We were there for 10 years. We just moved back to Vermont three months before COVID hit, December of 2019. Just by chance, we moved back before COVID. It wasn't premeditated because of COVID at all. Um, though it did certainly screw us up in getting our house built and stuff. Um, my friend Kirk Gray is the head sewer and designer at Jagged Edge Mountain Gear in Telluride. And Kurt had a factory in Denver. It's now moved to the Western Slope in Montrose. Um, my friend Eric owns Jagged Edge, the outdoor store in Telluride. My buddy John is a the manager there. And we had talked about, Kurt and I had talked about teaching industrial sewing classes um, on the Western Slope at the community colleges as a jobs program. Um, the Western Slope has a history. It used to be home to Marmot and Mountain Smith, used to sew all their gear in Grand Junction, Colorado. And so there's this whole collective experience that's just, sitting there idle, experience of all these people that used to work there. My sewing machine repair guy in Colorado was the guy who ran, who took care of the factories for both those brands. Wow. Um, so he had a ton of institutional knowledge that was just sitting there getting lost, um, both for machines, but also the sewers, even though they were getting on in years. So Kurt and I had talk, were talking to the community, local community college about offering free sewing, industrial sewing classes as a jobs program for economic development of the area. Um, both Montrose and Grand Junction built outdoor uh, industrial parks for bringing outdoor brands to the Western Slope. So like Ross Reels, one of the biggest fly fishing companies in America, moved to Montrose, just up the road from us, like an hour, um, in the, one of the outdoor parks. They're like one of the anchor buildings. DT Swiss, the big cycling company, moved to Grand Junction. Um, and a lot of other brands, and I can't remember everyone who ended up moving there now, we're moving to these outdoor parks to uh, create business hubs for the outdoor industry. Um, and so we knew there was a demand for sewers. Seek Outside was in Grand Junction, and they lived down the road from me, even though the company, the factory was in Grand Junction. They lived like five minutes away from me. So the guys from Seek Outside used to be in my shop all the time, Tim and his wife, and I'm forgetting, I think her name is Angie, forgetting her name. Um, you know, they would come over and we'd just sit there and treat the shit and talk about packs um, and outdoor stuff. Um, you know, I'd ride my bike by Tim's house and he'd like five seek outside tents set up in the front yard. <laughs> just in, you know, I was like, cool. Like, you see their, their stove tents and stuff. And they, you know, um, and so uh, Colorado Yurt was in Montrose. They build a ton of yurts and teepees. They have a huge industrial sewing facility. There are other brands that were there that needed sewing help. And we had talked about doing that. And I moved to Vermont. We hadn't been able to, to start those classes in Colorado by the time I left. Um, I was like, you know, we should I should really keep, keep this going because I think it's a really good idea uh, for economic development. And we, I called Strong, I didn't call Strong College. I wrote them an email to the head of academics, uh, Laura Spence. And uh, I said, hey, I wrote a five sentence email saying, hey, you know, here's me, here's what I do, here's what we wanted to do, would Strong be interested in doing these classes? And they wrote me back and said, sure. And then COVID hit. Um, 
And then I got an email from Josh Boson, head of the outdoor rec department saying, I really want to do this. I'm coming over. And we created the first uh, college class for Sterling. And I was like, wow, this is, this is a lot of work. <laughs> um, I, had, I had students in my shop four days a week. And since my shop is small, <clears throat> I only have three sewing machines. We had classes of five students four days a week here in my studio. And then um, the class was a huge success. Got tons of press all over the country, which kind of blew me away. Um, the Adventure Journal wrote about us. Uh, Christian Science Monitor wrote about us. Vermont Sports wrote about us. Um, I had an interview with Shannon Davis while he was editor at Backpacker about it. Um, and I was like, wow, we should keep offering this class. And so I started just offering classes through Alpine Luddites. And pretty much every class I've offered has filled up. And I've been offering them for almost two years now. And basically, it's maximum of three students. It's two to four days, depending on the class. We do a bike frame, uh, frame bag class for bike packing, teach people how to make their own frame bags. Um, and I also taught a pack making class where I would help people teach them all the steps of building their own packs, starting with, you know, fabrics, uh, pattern making, some of my design principles, um, durability being first. Um, and walk them through the whole process and I'd build packs with them. And everybody has left with a finished functional pack from my classes. That's kind of, I think I've done 15 classes now in the last year and a half. Wow. That is so, so fascinating. And I have, I have so many questions for the sake of time. I'll try to narrow it down to, <laughs> to one more meaningful <laughs> one. Um, what sort of, <clears throat> I'm not even sure if this is the best, the, the most <laughs> efficient question or way to ask this, but what sort of, developments what sort of interest or uh, what do you what do you see from your students i guess these people uh, especially in our day and age you know I, i'm 27 um we alluded to it earlier in the, in the podcast but sewing is not exactly the first thing that's on many people's minds um it's not the the most popular art form if you will um but once you do it you realize how powerful it can be uh, in many ways from repairing things to creating your own things uh, and limited creativity potentially like all these uh, you know, I don't want to fill in your, your question for you, but what sort of differences or what sort of developments do you see from your students when they get to do these things or this class? Well, they're all really excited. Every student I have wants to make their own gear, wants to be able to fix stuff. Some of them are already sewing their own gear. I've had employees from Patagonia show up who work for uh, Warnware and just want to learn how to make stuff better. I've had I did a private class for the product developers of Burton Snowboard, and, and this this kills me. Wow. Um, they, none of them, they're all the product developers, but none of them know how to sell or design anything. They just tell the fa the sample factory, uh, sample rooms in Asia what they want. That's how most of the outdoor brands are doing it. Like most That's outdoor wild. brands in America, or probably Europe as well, aren't outdoor brands. They're marketing and design company. I did a project with Marmot four years ago. A friend of mine was the general manager at Marmot. And he asked me to, we we're going to do a co-branded Alpine Lunites Marmot uh, mountaineering pack. I was going to build 150 packs for Marmot with both our labels on it. Um, and he said, you know, it kills me. I have this great design team, but not a single one of them know how to sew a thing. You mm -hmm. know, and that, obviously apparel is the biggest thing Marmot sells. And he's like, it just blew his mind that no one knew how to sew. And that's, 
indicative of the outdoor industry pretty much. I know Patagonia has <clears throat> a good design team and they sew all their own stuff and Arcteryx has some of that, but most brands don't. Yeah, yeah. I I have two follow-up questions. I don't know which avenue to take, so I'll just choose one and we can see if the sure. questions are relevant after. Your other gear. Uh, one of the questions we like to ask people, especially when they're makers, is is how has your your making experience and your preferences on fabrics and things? You become so picky when you're able to make your own things. How does that affect the other gear that you have? The the things that are are not packs. How does it affect your your sleep system and your clothing and and the other personal pieces that you choose like that? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I tend to shop small. You know, I, I try to uh, share whatever income I have with other makers if I need gear. You know, and I have some really favorite brands. Either they make everything domestically or in their own countries or they're single makers, you know. Yeah. So I, I really, I'm really careful where I spend my money. I, for example, Feathered Friends in Seattle sells my packs in their store. They get like six packs a year. It's all I have time for to build them. And they have to wait like everybody else. Um, you know, but their sleeping bags are some of the best down gear I've ever seen. And they're down clothing. So I buy Feathered Friends. Cactus Outdoor in New Zealand makes everything in-house in New Zealand. And I lived in New Zealand for a number of years when I was a sales manager at MacPack. And they have, they are the, they bought the largest uh, apparel manufacturing company in New Zealand now. Um, but I still wear their work pants and they last me like five years a pair, like something unheard of. If I was buying like Carhartt or Asian made gear, they cost three times as much. They last 20 times longer. So the big question, the big question is, do you also wear darn tough? Because I think that I think that might be a breaking point for a lot of people in Vermont. <laughs> uh, well, I do wear darn tough, and I actually know the owner of darn tough, Rick Cabot. I'm a member of the Vermont Outdoor Business Association, and Rick's on there. And I've known Rick for years just from going to outdoor retailer because I've always worked in the outdoor industry before I owned Alpine Luddites. So <clears throat> my friend Roland used to be a sales manager. Roland was one of my buyers when he was a buyer at the ski rack in Burlington. So it, it's a small incestuous community in some ways. Vermont Glove Company in Randolph makes fantastic gloves that will last for years. Leather gloves. Those guys are great. You know, I know them. Yeah, Vermont's got actually a really good small manufacturer. There's Sika Gear, the hat company. There is, uh, there's a woman's mountain bike clothing company in Burlington that sews locally. Um, so I try to invest in small gear, like my ice, my ice climbing gear, my ice tools are made by a one man shop in Poland at elite gear. And I know Jarek from working at all the ice festivals, you know, he makes carbon fiber shafted ice tools. He came from the aerospace industry, makes the world's best ice tools, one man shop. That's really fascinating. Cause I feel like a lot of people think of gear like that as having to be made on a large scale you know like if you're going to be sure. <laughs> using protection equipment it has to be that large but i guess to some extent you it's all out there if you do the research and, and know where to look then you can find privately made or, or at least uh you know one one man made yeah well look, look at like in the u.s like yates gear or misty mountain gear like when misty mountain started making harnesses i mean years ago down in your neck of the woods in north carolina yeah I'm you actually know. in Boone, North Carolina, and that's where yeah, Misty Mountain's a great so. brand. Um, <laughs> the owner is fantastic. I've I've talked to him several times. I've owned their harnesses. You know, a lot of my influences were New England makers, like Wild Things. You know, Wild Things was made in North Conway, and at the time, they were building the world's best climbing packs um, and clothing. They invented the Sewn Runner in North America, even though the Brits had it first. 
you know, like every modern stitch, you know, climbing sling that you see came out of North Conway. That's where it got took over for the U.S. They weren't necessarily the first, but they made it popular. I was like, wow, this is a lot better than knotting our slings. Yeah. And then the other people I really like, like Randy Radcliffe over at Cold Cold World in Jackson in North Conway. You know, Randy's been building packs forever. And I've known Randy for 20 years, actually. And, you know, he doesn't change. He's kind of like me. We're kind of old and grumpy and have our own set ideas that gear should last more than a season. You know, I'm not alone in my thinking. You know, the only thing that's really hard is clothing. Yeah. There's really not a lot of small clothing manufacturers. Uh, there's Northwest Alpine in Portland, Oregon. Um, I always said there's Feathered Friends doing down gear. But really like buying shell gear and stuff like that, it's really hard to find. And I used to make all my own outdoor clothing. I used to make my own Gore-Tex jackets. I used to make my own bibs. Wow. I made my own hot pink and black trekking pants back in the 80s in high school because you couldn't get that really cool stuff. A long time ago in Boulder, there was a company called J-Rat, which was Tom Jones. And Tom Jones made custom Gore-Tex gear. He made the modern, he invented kind of the modern climbing harnesses that we all use today. And those were all custom made. And he made me my first custom pack. I was still in high school. And I took it on a trip to the Andes. I went to the Andes to climb at high altitude when I was 17. That was the first time I went down there. And I've been down there a lot since. Um, I, I spent a lot of time down there climbing. Um, you know, he was kind of the model for Alpine Levites. You know, direct influence on me as a young person. I made my first backpack right after high school because um, I couldn't find a climbing pack I liked. He was a huge influence on me just to do it myself. And today, Tom runs Imlame uh, Canyon Gear. He's really big in the canyoneering. Um, some people might know who that is, know his gear at least. But yeah, there's a lot of old small brands when I was young that had a big influence on me. And so I still try to support brands like that today. It sounds like you've definitely been around a lot of great brands and also helped influence their brands. You know, you've mentioned Burton, uh, just all the relationships that you have in, you know, the cottage gear industry, but also just the outdoor industry as a whole. So you have such a unique place within the MYOG community. And as someone who has benefited from that, but also helped serve the community, can you maybe put into words um, what the MYOG community means to you? Well, I just think it's a sense of empowerment, really. I mean, anyone that wants to make their own gear, I'm always available to answer questions. I get DM'd on Instagram almost daily with questions on fabrics, machines, where can I find stuff? And I take the time to answer every inquiry. Um, it's really important to give back, you know, because, you know, these people aren't my competitors. They're my comrades. And that's kind of how I look at it. So I want to steer the conversation to a few more things about Alpine Luddites as we, as we kind of asked the last couple here, so don't keep you for too long. <laughs> um, no. I don't, I don't, we don't want to be personally responsible for making your lead time any longer. <laughs> um, but um, <clears throat> so one thing I wanted to ask you about is, uh, or kind of just open the conversation to you is Alpine Luddites is, uh, they're known for having an, an unwavering voice when it comes to social and political issues. Um, no. In big ways, like when you all raised, I think it was $40,000 for Planned Parenthood after Roe v. Wade was overturned, yep. um, but also in small ways, like like your t-shirts that say, this machine kills fascists <laughs> and yeah. things like that. Um, what's it, 
in a world where kind of like speaking up can be pretty intimidating and in a very odd climate, you know, I, I, I yeah. don't, I don't know how to say that the most perfect way, but where do you find the courage and where do you find this kind of inspiration uh, to, of action in your own way of using your company in these, in these ways? Every time I speak up to my beliefs, my business grows, period. And I don't do it to, to grow my business. I do it so people know who they're buying from, you know, because I think a lot of decisions are political, whether we know they are or not. And I'm very political. I absolutely am. You know, I'm starting a regenerative agricultural-based farm, you know, just to teach people how to sequester carbon. I mean, how we can do things more locally and do things better. It's really important to me that I live my values and I speak my values, you know. And I get I do orders for the military. I don't, you know, that sort of stuff doesn't necessarily stop me or bother me. They know who I am. It's really obvious. And people still come to me to get stuff made. I'm not here to judge people and yeah, I get some hate mail or people say, you know, I'm a fucking capitalist because I make money at my own business. They don't understand what I'm saying. You know, I, I just write it off. I, you know, I come from the world of punk music. I've always been involved with punk music and I don't really give a fuck <laughs> what people say. Um, I'm going to do my own thing. And if people don't like it, please go shop somewhere else. I don't care. Yeah. You know, and that's kind of my attitude. Um, it's totally my attitude. Absolutely. I, for me, uh, it's really great to see brands step out of that and show us who you are as a person, because it, it really is about the personal connection for me and for so many others. It's, you know, you can scroll on Instagram all day long, but the second, you know, you see something that you relate to or that pisses you off, you've made a personal connection. (laughs) So sometimes it doesn't, doesn't always matter. (laughs) You know, I, I'm not going to change the world, but I'm certainly going to know what, what people know what I think. You know, I, I don't really believe in capitalism. I, it doesn't really work. It's really creating more problems than we ever expected. And people have talked about this for decades. I mean, you can read Jacobin Magazine and, and get the history of all the political movements that, I, that I'm part of or believe in. Um, and it's like, wow, people have been fighting capitalism because they, they saw what's coming. They saw, you know, the degradation of wages. They saw working conditions, they saw it really as a way of keeping people separated. Because I think we all have a lot more in common than we realize, but everyone is so hard up right now, at least, dealing with just getting by in the world that it really creates Mm -hmm. divisions. And it keeps people from seeing some of the bigger picture. I love the perspective that you've shared here with us, which is this kind of concept of people know who you're buying from. That's such a unique concept in uh, the social world and in our our capitalist world, which is kind of like these faceless companies that produce a lot of remarkable things, but there is no connection there. Um, and you just saying people know who I'm buying from is such a cool way of saying I'm out there. I'm letting people know who who they can buy this from, so they understand the person behind the product. And that's such a cool perspective. And one of the the many beautiful aspects of the Cottage Gear Company is that you mentioned a lot of companies that you know the face and the people and the character behind. And that's such a cool aspect that we get to share in the MIO in the MIOG oh, world of the cottage industry. Absolutely. I think it's awesome. You know, I used to I've done factory tours in China. I've taken EMS and Big Agnes and REI and met them at production plants in Asia. And I'm just like, fuck. This is just this is just wrong. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm not yeah. knocking the Chinese. Don't get me sure. wrong. And I'm not knocking brands that do that. But for me personally, I was like, this is not how I want to 
interact with the outdoor industry or, or do my, I just really want to do my own thing um, and let people know who I am um, yeah. and just live my own values. I think that really shows through with uh, the gear that you make, how you make it, the way that you live your life, the way that you run your business. I mean, it's very clear and also very inspiring uh, to me from an outsider looking in that, you know, just your beliefs all going together about sustainability, about who you support, about where you're buying from. And I think that a lot of the time comes down to mindfulness and being so mindful in your life and in your decision-making from, you know, where you sleep at night and have your house to what you're going to do in the future and how also that you're giving back um, is really inspiring to me at least. And I hope that other people listening also get that sense of inspiration <laughs> from oh, you, you as well. Yeah. I don't think of myself as inspiring. I'm just pissed <laughs> off. But not at you, just at the world. <laughs> That's fair. You can be pissed off on the world too. But uh, you've mentioned that you've worked on a lot of different projects from, you mentioned doing, having work from the army and uh, you're doing the classes and you're making packs and Alpine packs and you'll do an ultralight pack. But what would you say is the most interesting project that you've been asked to make so far? And if you turned it down, that's okay too. It was still an interesting project that you were asked to make. So. <laughs> um, most interesting project. Oof. I don't know. I find them all pretty interesting, really. <laughs> you know, Fair. some are harder for me. You know, some of the one-off custom stuff can be pretty interesting. It just, it's really slow. Like right now I'm built, I have on my dock and I'm building two custom external frame bags for people's old Kelty frames, you know, and I've done that once or twice in the past. Reproducing really, really old designs in modern materials is kind of like really interesting for me. So you mentioned the custom pack process. If someone isn't familiar with you or this is the first time you've heard of your brand, can you talk us a little bit more through how the custom pack process works, how they can find you? Um, yeah, and just more about the, I don't want to say process again, but more just about <laughs> how that all, so, all that works. <laughs> well, you know, I built basically three kinds of packs, right? I do... Uh, the classic packs, which are total inspired reproductions of like gear from Caramore and Chouinard equipment in Mie of France, um, you know, and those, I have a small group of people that just live and die for that stuff. Um, kind of like what Eric's doing over at Rivendell. And then, you know, I do all my Alpine climbing packs, which are really templates. And we customize every pack for each customer, both with fit features, fabrics, um, colors, you know, it's just a starting, it's a, the models are a place to start a, start a discussion. They aren't the end place. It's just the beginning. And like I email everyone this three-page Excel sheet that's written in my left-handed dyslexic view of things, you know, about where I need measurements from, fabrics, options, colors, webbing, options on the pack, side axis, zippers, wand pockets, crampon carriers, how they want it set up for carrying ice tools. Um, you can download it from my website, which is just alpinelotites.com. Um, it's all over the place. And then once we start this conversation, there's a lot of emails back and forth. If you want to get on my waiting list, you place a deposit to get on the list, a non-refundable deposit. Um, and then we, we're on the phone for an hour, hour and a half going through the order form together. Wow. And then we just, they email me questions. Sometimes I'm mailing out fabric swatches uh, and webbing clippings just to get colors right. Oh my um, goodness. 
I was just going to say, I know that making a pack takes hundreds of hours, but the fact that you are <laughs> going beyond that and going truly the extra mile, I, I don't know of anyone that is on the phone with their customers for an hour and a half and going through all these options. I mean, most people are like, yeah, so we can email back and forth as the weekend goes on, you know, easy to respond when you're watching TV at night or something, but that is just man, it like truly incredible um, that you're putting so much of yourself into everyone's custom pack. It's not just like choose from the drop down what color you well, want. I mean, that is just amazing. Well, you can kind of do that. You know, it, it's as much involvement as you want. You know, do, you know, I want, I want this pack, you know, here's my back length and you know, I want all the webbing to be black. Right. You know, and I get that sometimes. Some people want some people it's 50 emails, you know, some people at zoom calls to Singapore or Japan, you know, it's, it's whatever it takes to, to get the right thing done. Wow. I mean, it's a reason my, there's a reason my packs are expensive because there's a lot of time involved in them, you know, and my packs aren't as expensive as they should be, to be honest. You know, I look at like what Chio gear charges for their Dyneema packs and they charge as much or more than me. And there's nothing custom about them, mm. you know, just to pull up as an example. You know, Dan McHale makes great, great packs. Um, you know, we're kind of charging the same, except, you know, he's similar to, to me. He's the only one I think that goes the way the way I do. John, I have one more, one more question that I, sure. I should have asked at the top of the episode. What is a Luddite and how did you come up with your name? <laughs> in today's world, Luddites are considered as being anti-technology. At the start of the Industrial Revolution in England, the Luddites were a group going around destroying the new wool mills and knitting machines that were forcing people from working from home, earning a real living, to going to work in these huge, horrible factories at the start of the Industrial Revolution. And they weren't against the machinery and they weren't against um, what they were building. That What they didn't like were the low wages and poor quality. Um, and so they went around destroying the factories and burning them to the ground. You know, they're kind of like the anti-capitalists of the day. Um, and I learned about Luddites when I was a teenager, I was a rabid environmentalist, as you could probably imagine. And I was a member of Earth First, which has gone on to be other things. But at the time, they were kind of like what today the um, Sunrise Movement is or the Extinction Rebellion, excuse me, the Extinction Rebellion Movement is in, in the UK about fighting climate change. They were fighting uh, for the environment and logging and mining and things in the United States. And so they had this opening, like they have these questions in their newsletter. They used to mail out a print newsletter, a zine. Um, so I'm really dating myself now. It was long before email. It's back when computers took up a whole room. But I, would, I, would, I, was, I was like one of three people in Connecticut where I grew up as a kid that got their, their newsletter. <laughs> and uh, and it was like Dear Luddites was in the beginning of their question and answers where people would write in. Like loggers would write in just saying what assholes we were and how they're going to kill us. Um, and then other people were talking about all the great things they had done and places they had saved. And um, that's where I got to term. And that's where uh, it just stuck with me my entire life. Like, that's perfect. That is um, perfect. So it's very political, you know, yeah. in that sense. You know, yeah. people may not get, and I won't even say it's a joke, but they may not get the, the inference. But there is a link on my website. Um, what's it say? I'm going to go off here for a second. It says, uh, 
it's under a word. You can read all about the Luddites on my website. John, this has been a super fun episode. Um, you are a wonderful person. Has been amazing to talk to. Thanks for sharing some of your really precious moments with us on on Rips Up on the Record today. Oh, thank you. Yeah, this has been fun. We'll uh, we'll link all of the we'll link to your website and to some of your work that you do in the description for anyone interested. Um, if you want to check out John's work, uh, he's on Instagram as well. You can follow all those links below. Um, but yeah, thanks again, John, for for sharing this time with us. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you.